Hello and welcome back to Foundation, the official podcast from Apple TV+. I'm Jason Concepcion, and this is season two. And just like last season, I'll be recapping, breaking apart each episode with Foundation showrunner and executive producer David S. Goyer. And in later episodes, we'll be joined by some of the cast, some of the writers. Uh, David, welcome. Thanks for having me. Feels like 152 years has passed since the last podcast. <laughs> About that. So so a little less than some people have been stuck in uh, weird interdimensional spaces. Well, today we'll bring everyone back up to speed with how things ended in season one. And then we'll dive deep into the first episode of season two titled In Selden's Shadow. This is your guide to the galaxy from Trantor to Terminus and hundreds of millions of other worlds. Space is a massive place. It is vast. We aim to make it smaller and brighter and add some context to everything you see on the show. But be warned, folks, there are spoilers in here. So be sure to watch before listening. Well, let's get into it, shall we? Please. We'll start with a quick recap of this, the premiere episode of season two. It was written by you, David, along with Jane Espenson, uh, directed by Alex Graves. We open on Harry. He is trapped somewhere that we eventually learn is the prime radiant. He is cursing Gale. Uh, He has been in there for a long time, and he is conscious this whole time. And his mind is coming apart. Indeed, it appears to have come apart. He was supposed to be the one. Why did you put her in the pod? Why did you put her in the pod? Uh, And also, the Prime Radiant, it appears to be evolving in some strange way. Yeah. We're not sure whether or not the Radiant itself has become self-aware. Meanwhile, Gale and Salvor are having a mother-daughter union, reunion, that is quite mind-blowing for all involved. What do I call you? Because mom feels a little loaded. (laughs) They later see the future through the Prime Radiant, and that there is a new crisis looming. Uh, Harry interrupts this reunion when he is able to finally get his mind together with the help of these figures from his past. And, folks, he is pretty steamed. It's time you and I had a reckoning. Back on Trantor, the Empire is crumbling. We see a day engaged in the pleasures of the flesh. He is having sex with Demarzel and pretty cavalierly dismissing his genetic bond with Dawn and Dusk, which is shocking. There is an assassination attempt on him during which we see that Day can handle himself pretty well. We also learn that he's getting married to Queen Sarath of the Cloud Dominion. This is a big evolution for Empire. Huge. It's time the Empire learned how to paddle again, brother. Yeah, as you said, the genetic dynasty is crumbling and The genetic dynasty was corrupted, and there are rumblings of that throughout the galaxy, which has caused unrest. And finally, on Terminus, with the Foundation, things have evolved there as well. Something is happening with the vault. It is rumbling, uh, and also some of the administrators there certainly seem like they are ready and willing to go to war with Empire. We'll see how that shakes out. Warden, that siren, I've never heard it before. No one has. In 138 years. David, is just me, or are y'all having a lot of fun this season? We had a blast writing this season. It was so much fun. It was so liberating to not have to explain uh, what psychohistory was and the Empire (laughs) and the clones and all of that. It was, we just felt like the training wheels were off and it was a blast. It was a blast. And I'm really proud of season one, but... 
I think we topped ourselves with season two. And I'm really, really excited for the world to get to experience the season and talk about the season. Okay, so let's talk about some of the big changes from uh, season one to season two. First of all, lots of new characters. Uh, You're moving us forward almost 200 years. That feels like a really exciting storytelling opportunity. Yeah, I loved it. I mean, when we first pitched this show to Apple, we said it's it's this kind of strange combination of an anthological show and a serialized show. And that each season would have a beginning, middle, and end. And then certain core characters, Selver, Gale, Harry, and Demerzel, through one way or another, would continue on from season to season, from century to century. The Cleons themselves would change and cycle through. They'd be similar faces, but different characters. And so there's there's a super story that's playing out. Uh, and then there's a seasonal story. and And that's fun because what it means is, to a certain degree, we can do a reset each season. It's also, something also is interesting is happening is even though the Cleons that you meet in season two are different Cleons, we know that the audience in some ways will remember their experience of the Cleons from season one and and bring some of those characteristics forward. All of which is to say they're different characters, but we're aware that the audience imputes certain attributes or, you know, events from season one into the second season with the Cleons. How strong is the Empire now? How strong is the Foundation now? It seems like they've been moving on these strangely parallel tracks. Yeah, the idea is that the Empire has diminished somewhat. I think in season one, I think they were in charge of 10,000 planets, Mm -hmm. and I think they've diminished to the point where now there's 7,000 or 6,000, still a lot, but not as many as they used to be in charge of, and they've relinquished control of the outer reach. They've just let that whole sector of space, which is the sector that Terminus is in, go dark. They've just cut it loose. And the foundation is sort of within the darkness, continue to flourish. And now they're on seven or eight worlds. So they've gone from a tiny community on Terminus where they might have 25,000 people to now they have a presence on seven or eight worlds. And in Empire's absence have been able to get a foothold in the outer reach. Mm -hmm. Well, let's dive into the conversation uh, about this episode. Let's start with with Harry. We see Harry in the Prime Radiant. How did how did he end up there? At the end of episode eight, season one, we learned that Harry had essentially survived death by having a, a digital copy of his consciousness created, that consciousness would be the steward of a backup plan, the second foundation. But Gil winds up through a series of circuitous events in season one on the Raven instead of Raish. She gets very angry. He was uploaded into that ship through a little kind of dongle in Raish's knife, and she yanks it out on her way uh, out of the Raven. Some people already on Reddit and other sites wondered, oh my God, wait, did she take Harry's consciousness uh, with her? And in fact, she did. But she doesn't trust him, so she transferred his consciousness into the Prime Radiant itself. And we just thought it would be kind of a lovely irony that Harry's consciousness be trapped in his own creation. Mm. And it's it's literally kind of like a mind prison slash prism, and he's faced with all these infinite facets of himself. And I will say that thematically, one of the things that we wanted to do with Harry as a character in season two 
was, you know, he's this very kind of um, Ernie the explainer, smartest guy in the room in season one, uh, kind of pontificates a mm-hmm. lot. And, and in, in season two, we wanted to roll that back and rehumanize him, learn more about his backstory and take you from a figure that was sort of deified and idolized by everyone to somebody that we can get to know and in a way fall in love with. That was the goal with Harry's character in season two. And that journey starts in the first episode where he's at his most frayed state. When he finally emerges from the Prime Radiant, he is angry, very, very angry. He says something early in the episode that I found found very interesting. He is raging against Gale, and maybe he's been doing this for over a century, almost two centuries now, just like castigating Gale Dornick. And he says something to the effect of, you know, if you had only let me in on your brilliant little plan, I might have helped you. You want to be in control? You know nothing! You're nothing but a petulant child! If you shared your great plan with people, maybe they could help you! It sounds a lot like something someone could say about Harry. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, I, I, he's, he's talking out of both sides of his mouth. And one of the things that we very deliberately leaned into is th- there's a reason why Harry picked Gale to be his mentee. And they have certain characteristics that they share in common. And so one of the questions is, are they, are they similar people? Is Gale going to turn out like Harry. The question is, is he is he referring to Gale or is he referring to himself? Mm. Is he castigating himself for not letting Gale in on the plan, which is sort of what it feels like. And it's interesting, that particular scene, because there's some lines of verse that he also says in that rant that are very important that will loop back around. Ooh. So, but, but the other thing we did on those days when we were filming Jared and the Prime Radiant was we just said, just let it rip, just say whatever you want. So there's, we have tons and tons of stuff that he said and some of it was scripted, some of it wasn't. And we just sort of mixed and matched and he blurted out all sorts of things. And we're like, oh, does that make sense? I don't know, but that's really interesting. Screw it, let's put that in there. It it really feels like uh, this kind of intertwined sequence with Gale and Salvor and Harry is really about getting proper sleep. Mm-hmm, Gail and mm-hmm. uh, Salvor have, have, are well-rested uh, after over a century in cryosleep. Harry has been awake this whole time, and he's, yeah. uh, he's very unhappy about it. So what happens to a, a consciousness when it is placed in this kind of stasis but not, not put into unconsciousness, when it stays awake Unmoored. this whole time? Yeah, yeah, when it stays awake. There's also a line in... Episode 10 of season one, where Dr. Selden is talking to Polly. He's come out of the vault for the first time. And they effectively say to him, were you awake this whole time that you were in the vault? And he says, no, it it would be dangerous or deleterious to someone like myself to be awake for that long. Well, now we're saying this Harry has been awake for 135 years. And so the other question is, is he even sane anymore? Mm. And so if you imagine yourself awake in a sensory deprivation tank for 135 years, what that would do to a person, I imagine you would be a mess. And so that's one of the things we're also playing with is, is he is he even hairy anymore? Can mm. we trust him? Is he even sane anymore? One of the things I really found fascinating about this sequence was the way 
I'm just going to call this character, this being the prime radiant, but it appears as his partner, Yana, from the past, it appears as Kale. The way this being gets Harry back together, which is essentially stop lashing mm-hmm. out emotionally and start using your brain, start thinking, start doing math again. Yeah. This, this is a, a really smart, really interesting way to do it by just kind of like walking Harry through his intellectual exercises once again. Yeah, that was also very deliberate. So this sequence with Kale and the Prime Radiant, Jane Espenson, who co-wrote the episode with me and is our co-executive producer, she had this idea that she would speak in verse. It's too long you've been kept all alone and you needed a face you could trust. Establishing trust, that's an interrogator's technique, not a life mate's. And the way you're speaking, that cadence, I was learning. And then something about the rhythm of the words. words. What was that? That's a coat, but from whom? Gail Dornick, my tormentor. And and Jane came up with the idea of uh, anapestic trimeter, which I can't, I mean, I, I, I understand it. I can read it, but I can't for the life <laughs> yeah. of me write yeah. in that way. So what we ended up doing was writing it without anapestic trimeter and just saying to Jane, okay, now now make it make sense. Yeah. Yeah. And um, but, but between the math and that, that was very deliberate. Uh, the, the, if you think about it also, for the first time in over a century, he realizes that there's another consciousness in there with him, which is a life raft for him. And then the question becomes who is that other consciousness? And there's still questions to be had in terms of who that other consciousness is, but there's no question it's another consciousness. And we just thought the lifeline would be twofold. The lifeline would be initially approaching him as Yana, who's essentially his wife, his life mate that we reveal, but then through his first love, which was math and geometry. I mean, that, that was his first love. And we even see a flashback of young Harry on Helicon. And in a way... I always thought that math was the first language that young Harry spoke. So in a way, she's sort of reaching back into his childhood and re-inspiring him. When Harry emerges, uh, he says to Gail, it's time you and I had a reckoning. Um, mm. where, does it, where does it stand between them now? It looks like we're heading towards a conflict between the two of them. We are heading towards a conflict. And the question is, can these two ever trust each other again? I would say that the that reckoning will likely continue on even past season two. Um, there's a bigger there there are some bigger reckonings to be had. This is the beginning of the kind of fissure between the two of them. I, I love one of Gail's narration lines here. There's an old saying: any man can be a success, but it takes a madman to be great. How true do you think that is? Pretty true. <laughs> <laughs> I think if you think about, uh, you know, a lot of the modern figures that we would consider great, or certainly a lot of the historical figures, they're people that thought outside the box. They're people that were told, no, you can't do that. No, you can't do that. And, and they kept pushing. The great disruptors in human history, a lot of them were considered mad or insane and uh, yeah, I think I think there's some truth to that. I think Harry, if uh, confronted with this quote from Gail, would say, well, you know, this is all math. It's all math. It's very thought out math. Do I act in a way that appears, you know, maybe capricious sometimes? Yes. But that's all because I want my message to translate to the widest possible audience. 
And sometimes that means dabbling in this kind of religious messaging or madman kind of messaging. But I am not a, I'm not a madman. I'm not I'm not that. And Gail would say, well, I'm going to I'm going to do the opposite of what Harry does. But it feels like no matter what you do, you're just going to be you're going to be taken into this kind of madman, great disruptor kind of dynamic the more you try and influence events on a wide scale. I guess what I'm asking is, is it inherent to the person or is it the process itself? It's a little of both, which I know is a cop-out, but one of the things that we always talked about with this show was dabbling in shades of gray. It's boring if the good people are only good and the bad people are only bad. I think great serialized storytelling, It's you'd like to see good people struggle and fall from grace and climb their way back up, and you'd like to see bad people flirt with moments of goodness and sometimes make selfless decisions. And I think that in order to be a leader, I think it's incredibly difficult to be a leader and not make compromises and not, Mm -hmm. you know, cut some people loose and not at least have to flirt with losing your soul. As foundation becomes ascendant, are they becoming a new empire? Mm. That's a great opening to talk about empire. And it seems as if, you know, at at least this administration, we're on Cleon the 17th now, season one was Cleon the 13th, um, is not overly concerned with the foundation, at least at this particular point in the story. Or they would have done something by now. It it feels, is this a little bit of, um, if I pay attention to you, then you exist? Is this kind of willful ignorance on the part of empire? Yeah, or it's a little bit out of sight, out of mm-hmm. mind. They've also, the Outer Reach has been dark. They The the, the foundation, uh, we say at the end of the episode, has been playing dead. Mm. So they've very deliberately been not making waves. And Empire is big, and Empire has a lot of fish to fry. And they've just simply not been paying attention. And as Brother Dusk says, Clan uh, the 16th at the end of episode one, he's like, oh, so we, we dropped the ball. We took our eye off the prize and we dropped the ball. And he's very angry and he's saying, wow, we should have kind of, we never should have let the foundation Mm -hmm. leave Tranter in the first place. We should have eradicated them back in season one. And and now they're a bigger problem. This is going to be a problem. So what we're letting the audience know is now the empire is aware that the foundation have been playing dead and that they're they're kind of on a path towards conflict. And and Cleon the 17th, really feels like a different person compared to Cleon the 13th from the from the first season. Of course, you, you mentioned the genetic corruption, which we learned about at the end of season one. Is this personality shift a result of the corruption? Is it just kind of what is inherent into this cloning process? Um, because it really feels like Cleon the 17th is off the rails in a way that Cleon the 13th was not. Absolutely. And that was one of the things that I first sold Leon was that from season to season, he'll, he will get to play different characters. This is a Cleon who works out like a motherfucker. (laughs) Uh, I mean, he's just jacked to the nines. Yeah. And he's a Cleon who is overcompensating, who's much more insecure than Day in season one. And he's haughty 
and he's 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 overcompensating in all the wrong ways and he's fronting a lot in this season and he's incautious and you know i imagine he's on whatever the imperial equivalent of steroids are and he's <laughs> he's, he's 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 a dick <laughs> we will get into that at one point cleon says to dawn he says quote i feel like a singular soul don't you feel like a singular soul now this is a direct counter to a lot of things. Uh, the thing that uh, leaped to mind for me was what we saw at the end of the episode in which Day uh, walks the spiral, where uh, we realized that um, he didn't have a vision. Yeah, he didn't have the vision that would yeah. that would tell the world that he had a soul, that he was an individual person. How did we get to this place? Is this the corruption? Is this just the evolution of? Is this just what would naturally happen if you clone a person this many times? How have we come to this place? I think that if you queried any of the Cleons, even prior to learning that the genetic dynasty had been corrupted, I think all of them would say, because we all come from ego, oh yeah, I have a soul. But it's then the question is, what what does that soul mean if you are genetically identical and your your memories are uploaded from your predecessors? What what does that mean? Do you have a soul? Do you not have a soul? They would certainly like to believe they have a soul. And I think this particular Cleon is thinking, well, the dynasty has been corrupted, so we're not genetically identical anymore. And so there's a margin for error then. So if we're not identical, well, that's bad in terms of how we're ruling. But maybe it's good because it means we... we by dint of circumstance, are are individuating. And so if we've individuated, we're not identical, so maybe we have souls. At least that's what he's managed to convince himself. This particular Cleon the 17th is also incredibly egotistical <laughs> and kind of a dick. So he's managed to convince himself. He said, I can't be Cleon the First. Cleon the First will always be, in some ways, the most influential, but you know, the idea here in episode one is that the current day has decided to proactively go at it and say, screw it. I can't be the first Cleon, but I can be the last. And uh, I'm going to dismiss uh, Dawn and Dusk uh, and make them <laughs> irrelevant. That's his plan, uh, as we discover in the first episode. We are reintroduced to Day as he is uh, having sex with Demarzel. Yes, Empire. Not Empire. Cleon. Cleon. Yeah. One of the things that we talked about in the writer's room of season one, when we talked about this strange relationship that Demerzel has with the mm -hmm. Cleons, is that she would be their nursemaid at the beginning of their lives. And then eventually, uh, when they become dusk, they usher dusk into darkness. And at one point, I can't even remember who it was, but someone in the writer's room of season one suggested, do you think any of the Cleons, when they're growing up, ever, you know, experiment sexually with this robot? And we thought, oh, absolutely. <laughs> that must have <laughs> happened, given how perverted they are. And of course, she's a robot, so she doesn't experience being used in that way, in the yeah. same kind of way. And one would argue that might even have been part of her programming. So we thought, well... You know, it's shocking, but let's just go for it. And, and one of the things that we also play around with a lot on the show is the audience perceives Demerzel as a human. She's played immaculately by Laura Byrne, but she's not a human. She's a yeah. robot. And, and, and at certain points, 
I it's jarring, but in, and we do it in this scene. She has her head cut in half, and yeah. then keeps going. And and it's I I like that cognitive dissonance where she's a human, but she's not a human. And does she even have feelings, or like Chat, you know, GPT? Is she pretending to have feelings? Right. We don't know. I mean, that's something that we'll get into. What are you doing, dating Demoiselle? Leon the first was well acquainted with her in that way. Why shouldn't I get to be? Because she changed your diaper when you were a child, for one, and two, is an abuse of your position. Oh, rest assured, she's enjoying my position very much. She's the one who first initiated. Dawn and Dusk, on some level, although they are effectively keeping their cards to themselves, but I would imagine they're alarmed at these developments, most notably because this essentially cuts them out of the future government. Their their existence is really not that important if Day's plan moves forward. Well, not only not only their importance, but potentially even their lives, right? If he's saying I'm ending the genetic dynasty, one of the other things that we talked about in the room when we were putting together the season is that it would be fun to inject a lot more palace intrigue and to set these clone brothers against one another and to not know, you know, maybe Day doesn't trust dawn and dusk, but maybe they don't trust each other. And and that's just kind of juicy and fun. It's just palace intrigue is fun. Let's talk about this fight. It is really impressive. How did this come together? This this fight between the blind angel assassins and a naked day. Well, we talked about, <laughs> we were determined to do a couple of, of really, you know, knock your socks off fight scenes. And I talked about that early on with Lee and he said, I would love to learn the fight myself and to not have a double for the fight. And he didn't have a double for this fight. He worked with our stunt team and we brought in a fight choreographer who had also worked on at least a couple of the John Wick films. And we choreographed this fight about two months out and Lee went in, God, at least three, maybe four times a week to learn this fight. He did every single frame of that fight himself. It took wow. a really long time. He also had to train for it. And... um he knew he was in the bedroom and initially it was written that he was kind of in a robe while he was doing the fighting. And Lee said to me, you know what would make this even harder for me, but also even more awesome is if I did the whole fight naked. And I said, God, I was hoping you'd say that because that was in the back <laughs> of my head the entire time. I mean, it's, I was absolutely hoping that would happen. And and we talked about it and he said, I think we should go for it. And, you know, it's, 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 first of all, it's more dangerous because he doesn't have any padding or anything like that on. It's more difficult to do in terms of picking our angles or whatnot, but it's a really standout sequence. And, and we were determined to shock the audience. And, and also, if you hadn't seen season one of Foundation and you had some idea that it was maybe this staid kind of intellectual story, which it certainly is and has aspects of that. We wanted to show people that it's a broad canvas and that we could do mm -hmm. a lot of things on the show. And that's part of broadening the canvas is very deliberately letting the audience know, oh, there's lots of things we're going to do in this show. And and here's the kind a kind of scene that you haven't seen before. And that was shocking and, and fun. Yeah, yeah, whether it's the fight scene or these kind of hints at humor and camp, there are a lot of, the, the tonal palette is a lot 
wider. Yeah. Pace's performance as Cleon the 17th is so on edge. When a character takes themselves that seriously, as powerful and as sure. dangerous as he is, there's also something really funny about yeah, it, you yeah. know? Tell us about that widened palette. Well, the inspiration, at least in terms of the humor for the widened palette, was there's a scene in episode four of season one where Cleon the 13th is upbraiding the royal statisticians and <laughs> yes. and he he yells at one of them yeah. so much that the guy has a heart attack and basically dies. And I always intended it to be a funny scene and to be honest we were experimenting with how far we could take it and Apple and Skydance were nervous about that scene and they were nervous that you know they were worried it would burst the bubble of kind of the seriousness of the show but i absolutely adored that scene in season 1 and i just said to everyone i it's my intention to do more of that in season 2 because i think it's fun and i i think that it's i i think even within a big giant serious epic you can have moments of levity you can have moments where we're smiling at the characters smiling at the absurdity of some of the characters and Lee, in particular, was nervous when we did that scene, when we shot that scene in season one. He was worried about going too far. But then when he saw it in the edit, he loved it as well. And he agreed that we should do more of that and that we should lean into it, in particular with his character. And so really the inspiration for that was that one scene in episode four of season one. There's a, there's another moment that made me uh, laugh it's when um, Day has been attacked. He's taken a, a quite serious uh, slash with a molecular blade across the chest, and he's also been shot with a blaster. Demerzel has put him in the recovery tub, and he is uh, duly recovering, but the technicians there are trying to get him to just kind of calm down. And he <laughs> he screams at one of them, utter the word rest and you die. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> What are you doing to him? Empire refused anesthesia. Not a chance I'd let these butchers put me to sleep. <laughs> Risk them decanting another me? For all I know, they were in on the attack. For all I know, you were. You can't possibly think I could have done this. The alliance, the marriage, you hate! Madame? Yes, Empire, but you really must. Utter the word rest and you die. Help me up. Somebody give me a damn blasted robe so my manhood isn't flapping around. What a fun group of scenes to play. He's really just letting it all loose here. But there's also, on top of that, a great moment after he asks for a robe when he looks at Don and he gives him a wink, which I yeah. just thought, <laughs> and that was Lee. Lee just added that on the day and he said, too far? We were like, no, no, no. Amazing. Yeah. Amazing. <laughs> uh, I loved it. Um, uh, about this assassination attempt, this is, you're not going to tell us anything. But it strikes me, at least in this episode, there's no shortage of uh, potential uh, suspects yeah, behind this, yeah. right? Certainly, you know, Dawn and Dusk have a lot to lose in this situation. Uh, we meet Queen Sarath from the Cloud Dominion. We don't know necessarily how she truly feels about this wedding, uh, but maybe there's a world in which she doesn't want it to continue. Uh, then, of course, there's a foundation. It feels really juicy. Where? Sh what should we be paying attention to with this particular plot? Well, we thought it would be fun 
among, I mean, I'm kind of amazed at how many things we managed to pack into that first episode. It, when I, we were mixing it, I don't know, a couple of months ago, and I was like, wow, a lot happens in this episode because we knew that we wanted to introduce this mystery in the first episode. And we said, look, how many possible suspects can we come up with? The more suspects we can come up with, the better. <laughs> and so you've named Dusk, Dawn, Queen Sarah, her her enjoiner, Rue, is another character Rue. of the foundation itself. Yeah. So there's at least five suspects. And part of the fun of that storyline is we'll we'll kind of go down the list and learn whether or not it was one of those or whether or not it was someone that isn't on that list. And that's part of the fun of it. Speaking of Queen Sarah and her enjoiner, Rue, we meet them briefly, but it certainly feels as if uh, the queen has some very specific ideas about her role in empire going forward. She seems uh, certainly like she's not going to shrink from trying to influence the imperial policy and have her voice heard. Uh, is that the case? Absolutely the case. And again, we thought it would be fun that technically Cloud Dominion, which is a domain of planetesimals, is part of empire. It was. It used to be it's an empire in its own right. And it was subsumed by empire at some state, but they also have a, a fair amount of autonomy uh, within empire and they're powerful. So Day thought by offering to marry Queen Sarah, that it was a way to kind of, you know, shore up his own situation. She's also very popular with people among, frankly, more popular than he is at this point. So he was hoping if I am going to get rid of the dynasty, to burnish his image by, you know, marrying up. He assumes she's a lightweight and he can bigfoot her, but she turns out to be much shrewder. There's a lot of fun to be had between those two because he spectacularly underestimates her. I'm going to tell you who I think my main suspect is on Please. this assassination. I think for me, it feels like a dawn. It feels like dawn now. Here are the cons. I'll give you the cons first. You know, the younger version of Empire, does he have the connections? Does he have the kind of patience necessary to pull something like this off? The pros being, has the most to lose, is acting very casual about the fact that he's about to be out of a job, potentially his life under threat, certainly under a new regime. Why would you want this you know, extra potential power center around mucking things up. You know, you, the easy thing, certainly if I was Queen Sarath and potentially Day would be, let's get rid of this guy and we mean permanently. And it seems like, man, if if I was him, I would certainly consider it. <laughs> of course, there are many dangers. Yeah. Um, but I would consider it. Now, uh, Demerzel is way ahead of uh, Day's thinking, but it feels like it, it, if I was to guess, I would look heavily at Dawn. I mean, obviously, I'm not either going to, Confirm nor deny. Of course, but not. but it, we but we do introduce <laughs> the idea uh, in the aftermath of the attempt when Day is talking to Don, where he says to Don, "You and Dusk yeah. are going to undergo an independent neural audit," which is interesting because we basically said we can comb through your memories and see whether or not you might have done this. There's more than meets the eye to that statement by Day, and we're going to unpack a whole bunch of stuff there because that's an interesting idea in and of itself that Empire has the capability of auditing the memories of people, including themselves. Let's go to Gail and Salvor. There's a real interesting emotional texture to the scenes with Gail and Salvor. There's this 
really energizing meeting between mother and daughter, mother discovering that she even has a daughter. This is huge. This is amazing. You can feel this kind of jump-started emotional bond that is so strong in there and surprising for both of them. And at the same time, there is this melancholy of all of this taking place on Synax, which is essentially gone now. A drowned world. Yeah, it's, it's completely completely abandoned, taken over by the, the creatures of the sea. We try, when we're in the writer's room, when we're coming up with these crazy ideas, I, I, I constantly say to everyone, I mean, not just our, our writers, our actors, our directors, that it's, it's really important that these storylines work even if you extract the science fiction from them. Because if they don't, then... I just think we're on really thin ice. Like we we need to understand kind of the root of these stories. And so the Gail Salver story, it would be akin to a young woman had a baby and, you know, thought the baby had died in childbirth. And then, you know, 25 years later, someone shows up on the doorstep and says, guess what? I'm your daughter and I survived. That's the closest analog we could come up with. Salver, by contrast, has known for some time that Gail was her daughter and traveled across the galaxy to meet her and always felt like she was an outsider because she has these strange abilities. And she had this fantasy that when she finally met Gail, everything would make sense and she would feel like she'd found her people. Not only that, but by extension, Selver is also Synaxian. So A, she comes to Synax, which is a dead world now. They're literally the last two Synaxians left. Gail didn't know that she had a daughter. And she's trying to process it and Talver feels this enormous sense of rejection. One of the things we always try to do is subvert expectations. So you think there's going to be this, this happy reunion between the two and it's, it's really awkward. Yeah. And, and the question is, will they ever get to a place where they can be mother, daughter and Salver feels rejected and Gail feels, she doesn't know what to feel. <laughs> and, and, and she, she, she feels like she should love this person, but she doesn't even know this person. She didn't know she had a daughter. So it's messy in, in hopefully a way that's really interesting for the audience. <laughs> and this isn't how I thought it would be. I had this idea that I could find you and I thought by some miracle, if I did, there'd be this connection between us and I'd see you and I'd feel like now I make sense. We've known each other a day. Savo, you had time to imagine what this reunion might be like, and I didn't. So it's a shock. Maybe one day this will be less strange, and maybe it won't. I don't know yet. Right. We'll play it by ear. You mentioned that these stories needed to work, even if you kind of lifted the sci-fi out of them. And I, and I found that very interesting because watching this episode, you know, the emotional drive is so present. And for me, it's the connecting thing because, you know, the idea of meeting your parent a hundred plus years after we last left events, right. and not only that, but meeting your parent and you're older than your parent, these yeah. are such strange things that the, the emotional drive has to be there to ground them. That's true. That could not happen in real life, right? Yeah, right? So how did how did uh, Lula Bell, who plays uh, Gail Dornick, and Leah Harvey, who plays Salvor, how, how did they, how did you all find this kind of like emotional through line to like ground these really kind of far-flung concepts and ideas? 
again, the emotional through line was I, I have friends that were adopted, right? Mm. And so, you know, I have friends that have had a good version of the story and a bad version, which is they met their birth parents, right? And, and some of them went well and they have a relationship with that parent and some of them were disastrous. And not only was it disappointing, but the birth parent didn't want to have anything to do with them how gut-wrenching that would be. And so I know in the case of Leah and Lou, we had them talk to some people that who were adopted and met their birth parents and, and just go through those experiences so that they, they could bring some of that into their performance. And that was how they prepared for that aspect of the story. Let's go to Terminus and the Foundation. We don't see a lot of the Foundation in this episode, but it was really fascinating to meet this next generation of foundation leadership that is kind of wasn't there in person for the original events. What does this message mean to them now? How do they carry it forward? And also this feeling, this kind of subtle and occasionally not so subtle jostling to be closer to the, to the flame, so to yes. speak. I mean, that absolutely came from Asimov. One of the things that's fun about his subsequent stories is the further and further the foundation gets from Harry Seldon and from Trantor, generations or multi-generations removed from that, they are all jostling for power. And at a certain point, even in Asimov's books, the foundation takes on kind of a power of its own and becomes more interested in just continuing that power and not, and, and, and who cares about that mission, you know, uh, yeah. with Harry Seldon. We, we just want to keep a good thing going. You know, once you get beyond the founders, there's mission drift, right? And at a certain point, power just wants to hang into, onto power. Yeah. There's so much to talk about and there's so much happening in this episode, but I want to end our conversation just like we did last season with our favorite game, Building the Foundation. Show your one. You will be allowed to build your foundation. Who's supposed to be the one? Why did you put her in the box? You want to be in control? You know nothing! This segment in which I ask you a bunch of light speed questions so we can learn more about the Foundation universe. And I have just a few today. You ready, David? We'll find out. <laughs> Do Cleon and Demarzel have a safe word? <laughs> Probably yes. Uh, any opinion on what the safe word might be? <laughs> oh, man. I mean, clone, because it's an anagram of Cleon. <laughs> are, uh, are Cleon and Demarzel's dalliances grist for the, uh, the rumor mill around the palace? Are people talking about this, or is it kept pretty contained? I, I do think, to a certain extent, it's grist for the rumor mill. But in terms of the galaxy at large, no one knows that Demarzel is a robot, right? So the question is, how many people within the palace know that Demerzel is a robot? Uh, uh, and not everyone. So that's interesting as well. Uh, how long will Harry's post stuck in the prime radiant nap be? And will that nap be refreshing? <laughs> well, um, you know, 
he gets out of that nap at the end of this episode. And yes. that nap, it looks like has been 138 years. I mean, like I, I wear one of these sleep monitors and it gives me mm-hmm. a rating in terms of like, you know, I got really excited once because I got a 92% on like my, whatever my sleep aptitude or sleep quality <laughs> score was. And so is he has like a thousand or do you, you know, get so much sleep that you go all the way, you know, around to scale and come back the other side. It doesn't seem like it's been very restful. He seems pretty fragmented. <laughs> it doesn't. Okay, finally, I think you know where this is going. Uh, but when we glimpse the vault, it is rumbling yet again. And so, David, I want to close with uh, a return to our favorite game. What is in the vault, David? David, what is, what's in the vault? After all these years, what's in there? Uh, well, of course, I'm supposed to come up with a bunch of pithy answers, <laughs> right? <laughs> I think in season one, I said a wasabi-flavored Kit Kat or something like that. Uh, Oh, I know what's in the vault. I know what's in the vault. Shamrock shakes. Ooh. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But I will say this legitimately. We are going to go inside the vault this season, and what's inside the vault is definitely kind of mind-blowing. David, thanks so much for playing, and thanks for joining us on this episode. My pleasure. It's, It's been fun to pick up where we left off. Join us next week for episode two, when we'll be joined by Leah Harvey, who plays Salvor Harden. Thanks for listening to Foundation, the official podcast. Be sure to follow on Apple Podcasts to get the next episode in your feed and watch Foundation on Apple TV Plus, where available. This is an Apple TV Plus podcast produced by Pineapple Street Studios. Our executive producers at Pineapple are Gabrielle Lewis and Barry Finkel. Our producers are Ahmed Ali Akbar and Ben Goldberg. Our managing producer is Bria Mariette. Darby Maloney is our editor. Engineering and mixing by Hannes Brown. Music by Carly Bond with additional music provided by Apple. And I'm Jason Concepcion. Thanks so much for listening. Please respect and enjoy the peace.